Have you ever wondered how deep tech companies actually start? Well, we were too. So in this podcast, we'll be interviewing scientists and entrepreneurs that have taken their ideas out of the lab and turned them into startups. I'm Antonia. And I'm Christina. And this is Startup the Science. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Startup the Science. Today, we're talking with Tanya Colonna and Hobie Tam of Blacktop Labs. We met them through the AdmaCamp program just a couple weeks back where they won the Best Pitch Award. And of course they did because they just have the most incredible story. And I'm not going to spoil it for you. They tell it. For me on a personal level, I actually could really relate to some of what they talk about in in their story and what they're trying to do with Blacktop Labs. Basically what they're doing is creating a wearable. It's a set of sensors that you put on your body while training. So this is more for athletes and things like that. I think they're also doing rehabilitative care as well, but uh, mainly their focus is on athletes. Now, I'm not an athlete, but I, I danced extensively through until probably my mid-20s, and I had so many injuries. And basically, if I had their their wearables, I would not have experienced as many injuries as I had back then. Because with their sensors, you can basically monitor all of your training, and then the data will tell you when you're overdoing it or something like that, so that you don't injure yourself, that you don't overtrain, and that um, you basically become the most optimal athlete that you can possibly become. So uh, that's what they do. Maybe some of you guys will relate to this as well. They're just really cool people with a really cool idea, really cool technology, and a really cool story. It's just a lot of coolness happening in this episode. So I hope you stick around, listen to all the coolness. And yeah, so here's Tanya and Hobie of Blacktop Labs. I hope you enjoy Hi, guys, and welcome to Startup the Science. It's very nice to have you with us today. So we'll be talking about Blacktop Labs, but first, I think it's uh, better if we start off with an introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Tanya, do you want to go first? Sure. Hi, and thanks for having us here. My name is Tanya Colonna. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Blacktop Labs. Um, I studied engineering in the past, so that's actually where I met Hobie about 10 years ago. And then from there, I dove heavily into business development. I worked at a large company for about a year in the operations engineering department, diving into negotiations for that. But for the past three years, I've been working with Hobie on a couple different startups. We teach medical device commercialization at Clemson University and also now at the University of Kronia in Northern Netherlands. Thank you. And hi, Hobie. Nice to have you here as well. Yeah, um, like Tanya said, we met in engineering school. Shout outs to Rose Holman Institute of Technology. No one knows that school except for people that go to Rose. What else? I think Tanya covered it all. Um, instead of going into industry, I went and got my PhD at Clemson University in bioengineering. And now we both live in the Netherlands. So how come you both live in the Netherlands? Let's start with that. Just, just get that out of the way. It will be a question that will come up anyway. Yeah, it always does. Um, Hobie and I kind of have this tag team version of answering this. So Hobie, do you want to start off where you normally do? Yeah, this is the most common question we get. Why do two Americans end up anywhere outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, much less the Netherlands? So it all started off with uh, watching a basketball game in, during March Madness. So March Madness is a giant college basketball tournament 
in the US and me and a couple buddies were watching um, a game and a player in a in a very in a final eight game. So this is near the not the semifinals, but this is pretty much the elite top eight teams. And one player lands, no one contacts him, no other players around him. He lands and his leg snaps in half on national television. So bone through the skin, bloody. They cut immediately to a commercial. It was a wild, wild compound fracture. And so we're sitting there thinking, hey, why does this still happen? If athletes bring in so much money to athletic programs and it's kind of a huge branding thing for schools, um, us going to Clemson University, we're a huge American football college team. We were like, why isn't there you know, some type of gadget or sensor system that can prevent that type of injury or at least measure different patterns of movement to kind of predict, hey, your players might get injured. So we did what any good engineers would do, uh, bought a couple of cases of beer, went online, bought some parts. We're like, like I still have a picture of us making the first prototype of our sensor that essentially evaluated someone's gait cycle. How well are you walking? How well are you running? And can we detect deviations? It looked like spaghetti wire. Um, we called it a Medusa because it just looked like a tangle of wires. But the important part is it worked. And, um, you know, I still have like video and pictures of us sitting in a living room, stripping wires with our teeth, making this thing. We built like a 3D printer in the living room. This is like legit us just chilling in a living room, a couple engineers just trying to figure something out. So this was a while ago, right? When when was this? This was maybe 2016, 2015. And that prototype we've since just kind of ditched. But um, the idea still remained in my head. And I was like, okay, it's possible to, you know, wire some sensors up together, control it somehow, and then take data and analyze it. That was the main idea. And so I was like, okay, there's a legit business concept here, but, you know, I can do the technology part, but I need someone to be CEO of the company. And that's when I was like, who hates their life enough to start a company? And who do I trust enough to start a company with? And so I called up one of my best friends, at the time, she was up in Boston. She hated her job, and I knew that. Um, I called her out like, hey, Tanya, do you want to start a medical device company that uses sensors to evaluate Parkinson's stroke recovery and trying to treat neuromuscular disorders better? And she said yes. And two weeks later, she drove down to South Carolina to incorporate the company. That's dedication. Or she hated her job a lot. I don't know which one it is. It's a mix. <laughs> it's a mix. It's always a mix. This is the second uh, episode, I think, in a row that we have of a uh, startup founder saying it's kind of crazy to start a company. So that's good. We have consensus on that. So that's how it started, right? And what you had in mind from the very beginning was to create a device or a way of letting athletes know when they're about to have an injury that they should stop, pull back and, and not go as hard in their training? Is, was that the original concept? Yeah, yeah, that was the original concept. It was to prevent those injuries that shouldn't happen in the first place. So those non-contact injuries, just like Kobe was talking about with Kevin Ware, nobody touched him and yet his bone was out of his skin. And that was clearly a fatigue injury. There should have been a way to prevent it. So we wanted to make something like that, uh, but we knew it had to be rooted in data. So we needed to validate prior to actually entering that sports market that what we had not only worked, like if you if you talk to an engineer, a prototype, 
it's just exactly what Hobie described, like all of those wires together. But if you talk to a team, if you talk to a physiotherapist, physicians, neurologist, that's not a prototype for them. A prototype is something that they can take to a patient and use on them. An actual device <laughs> that didn't look scary. So what we did from there was we tried to find those people who would work with us on iterative design. And we got hooked up with a couple of different people, physiotherapists, neurological physiotherapists, a mentor of mine, his wife had Parkinson's. So that's why we ended up going down that road first. Uh, we got really excited at one point because we were mentoring some senior design students at Rose Holman. And we thought we had something that the, the customers wanted, uh, brought it to them, did a demo, and turns out it's, it's not what they wanted. Uh, they wanted something that they could use in clinical trials. We were excited again because we got into contact with world-renowned neurologists at the Cleveland Clinic, and they said the same thing. They were really excited about what they were doing, what we were doing, but they needed, they only wanted to work with us during clinical trials, which meant somewhere between 500K and a million in investment before actually knowing if we had a product market fit. So we thought, all right, that would be pretty dumb. So uh, that's where the Netherlands came into play. Uh, we decided to apply for different accelerator programs. We had a hypothesis that the European market would be better for this, more, more open to the upfront iterative design and got into a program here called Venture Lab North, another shout out. And we did a year long program there. We got hooked up with some good partners here in the Northern Netherlands for both development and validating everything in uh, actually knee rehabilitation. So we have data on over 70 patients that this is something that will add value to the market within that realm. But then we needed to pivot again, actually ironically back to sports uh, because this is the market that didn't need as much validation and time and development before we could actually make a sale. That makes sense. So is it still a medical device in the form in which it is today? Or um, is it not a medical device and therefore it does not require all the clinical trials that are so expensive before you even know if it's going to sell? No, it is not a medical device. So the intended use is not in the case of injured athletes and recovery is to use unhealthy people to optimize training. So therefore, no, we don't need all of that medical device clearance. Uh, luckily, we found a market where people just want more data on their body and they're willing to help us do this validation. There's a guy in this market who actually spent a month testing his own urine during training just so he could see anything with his body that would help him in monitoring fatigue and training. And this market is the strength athletes. So right now we're focusing on power lifters, bodybuilders, crossfitters in that market where they just want more data so that we can use that data to then further validate our device, add value to that realm and then scale into those team sports that need those validation and then further into the medical devices. So you don't need to do clinical trials, but you do need to do a lot of testing and gather a lot of data and we heard during AdmaCamp that you were part of that you're also testing this device on yourself. Um, would you like to tell us more about that? How does that work? How we can take that one? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the only people that we can really test is ourselves, um, mainly me. I used the power lift for probably around 
five years and then I was I switched to Olympic lifting. And, you know, it was either pause all development or test on ourselves. So it was really we had to start testing on ourselves more. Um, obviously the first people that we use the sensors on are ourselves. But because through this kind of testing, a lot of people, like Tanya mentioned that we were testing people that were coming back from knee rehabilitation. And so we were monitoring how well they were redeveloping neuromuscular pathways to do movement again. We found out that pretty much everybody's different. Um, there's, it's very difficult to baseline. And so what we have to do and what Tanya is mentioning is that we have to test on a lot of people before you know this product would be ready for larger clients. However, knowing a lot of people from powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting, you know, there's probably five kilograms between first and 10, 10th place, especially maybe three kilograms between first and third place. So they're looking for any razor's edge of advantage. And you know, we spend six to nine months training for one competition. Every single rep that you're doing matters, especially when you start hitting higher and higher loads. So in terms of testing on ourselves, you know, I'm essentially at home workout. Um, this is the first time probably in the past seven, eight years that I'm not weight training. And so my muscles are going away. So essentially I'm gathering control baseline data. And so when I do start lifting again, um, we can actually capture all that data. And I plan to do that with pretty much anybody that lifts because a lot of people are out of the gyms. And so we track the atrophy phase and then build up and validate some of our hypotheses about neuromuscular efficiency, neuromuscular development, and how our device can actually be used to train, um, optimize training. I guess one of the biggest things as an entrepreneur is finding the silver lining in especially a little pandemic. So um, this is the best move. Yeah, we just had a, an episode last week, actually, about finding the, the opportunity in this crisis. And I guess you did. People don't lift as much since they can't go to the gym. So maybe that's a small silver lining for you. Um, I'm just curious now, maybe for, for everyone listening to, how exactly does the device look like? So you mentioned sensors. We can kind of imagine, you know, that someone attaching lots of sensors onto their, to their muscles. But can you describe it a bit for us? And does it come, I imagine it does come with the software that can then show you your performance and where you're at. Um, yeah, if you could just describe the whole thing for me, that would be really good. <laughs> so we do have sensors. They're medical grade sensors, actually, not intended use for a medical device, but they're used right now to monitor babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. So that's how reliable this data is and accurate. So it's it's really small. It's like the basically the size of a one-year-old coin, and it's it has a EMG and an IMU within it, so you can measure muscle activity and movement patterns. And then we have six of those that are integrated together wirelessly. So those right now for the first iteration design, they're just going to be like a patch. You can stick them on your body and we'll give you basically guidelines as to where the optimal placement for that would be. And yeah, so that's that's pretty much the hardware. You'll also get a receiver, which is also a charging deck. And then, Hobie, do you want to talk more about what we're envisioning for that software output? So right now we have kind of a, a back-end software where you can upload all of this data and track your training. And then in the future, we should, have, we should be able to create some type of real-time feedback so that in between sets, reps, wads, you can tell if you're on the edge of overtraining or undertraining 
based on that baseline data that Hobie mentioned before. But Hobie can talk more about kind of the user interface. Yeah, the software right now with our piloting customers, um, it'll we'll kind of walk through the analysis with them. But in the future, it'll just be almost like any other data tracking app. So like, um, you know, with endurance training, you know, my watch takes a bunch of data, analyzes my heart rate, my paces and everything. And then it just spits out a number one to five of, okay, this is the training effect. Eventually we want to, we want to work towards, okay, we take all this data and we give you one number. But right now, because we're a new technology, we've learned that we have to show um, our potential customers, especially especially kind of like the, you know, the guy that's testing his urine every day for a month just to see if he can deadlift more or if he's too tired to deadlift. That's commitment. Yeah, he's he's going to want to see, you know, what are you actually measuring? How are you analyzing it? And what does it really mean? So he believes in that number. And so with our first customers, that's what we're doing. And then once we kind of automate that, we do plan on, um, you know, testing that over and over again. But essentially, when we do kind of break out into the larger um, second wave of customers, we definitely want something that's very seamless, almost invisible, much like a fitness tracking app where it's just kind of, okay, we take the data, we look at muscle activation and movement, and we kind of make look at efficiency. And then based on that efficiency, we can evaluate how well are you moving today? How well are you moving relative to you know historic workouts that we've tracked you previously on? And then we can start to build this baseline. And if you're within this threshold or over that threshold, and then we can tell you analytically, how effectively are you training? For instance, like if I run, I have to convert to kilometers. If I run like 20 kilometers at a certain pace, then like my fitness watch tells me, hey, I need one and a half days to recover based on historically what I've been able to do as well as immediately that week. And so we want to move towards something like that. If you're moving heavy weight and you know the, the workouts are getting intense, at some point in time, if you keep training like that, you're going to injure yourself. But you still have to progressively overload to get stronger. And so that's really where this technology has value is that we can tell you when you're training heavy safely, well, not safely, but you're not going to risk injuring more than you need. It's not just that it would tell you, okay, you've done too much, now just stop. It would also be able to predict when you're able to start working out again and to what extent. And for example, how much weight can you lift or um, how much can you run next time or things like that. So it's it's both um, a guidance tool of, okay, take it easy. You've, you've done a bit too much, but also a predictive tool of when you'll be able to, to push towards your limits again. That's cool. Yeah, I think, I guess when we launch, I think we'll have to work with coaches because we'll work with competitive lifters first. So the coach will ultimately make that decision with more data. And again, once we get more automated, we learn how people lift and recover and progressively overload, um, then I think that it can get really predictive where you don't need a coach to interpret this data. Exactly. So the first customers were basically feeding that data into our algorithm so that we can work towards that. And I don't know if you've heard of the Whoop Band or if anyone listening has, but we're basically, it, it's easier to make a comparison or a metaphor. We're basically making a Whoop Band for your muscle. So the Whoop Band uses heart rate variability for this, but we're using that muscle recovery data. That's very cool. And so the market that you're targeting is professional athletes, right? We're not talking about anyone working out uh, during the corona pandemic in their homes and 
putting on some sensors to track their <laughs> their muscles. Um, we're talking about actual athletes, right? So I'm curious to know why this is the market that you're targeting and why not just consumer fitness? Why can we all just buy this? Yeah, so that's not the target market right now. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that validation that we spoke of before we can make it really simple for this market to be able to actually use with actionable data. We're going to have to feed that algorithm a lot more. The other is kind of the cost price. So if you look at a system like this that you would buy for a research institute, there's in Europe, it would be about 20,000 euro for the competitive devices. And in the US, it's about $35,000 for comparable devices. We've gotten that price point really far down, but it's still not to a point where we would be able to make a margin large enough to sustain our company and sell to these kind of amateur athletes. It would really have to be people dedicated to the sport who are willing to invest into purchasing this product. And from our customer interviews, we found that we could come to a price point with these first, these strength athletes, then these team athletes and the medical that would give us the margin that we need with the cost of goods that we have. And if I think about uh, potential competitors, like if you were to launch this in the consumer fitness world, um, things like Fitbit, right, would be an obvious thing that comes to my mind that a lot of people already use that and you would have to then convince them to switch to something else that might provide them with more data, but maybe they don't want more data or, or less data, but maybe they're happy with the level of data they have. So it's the same issue. But in the professional athlete space, um, is there a lot of competition for what, what you're developing? Not that we have seen and not that the people that we've interviewed have heard of. So there is a competition. There's a company in New Zealand making something similar, but they use different technology and actually we're scheduled to speak to them later today. So we'll see if there's any potential collaboration, but within the health and fitness Most of the people that we've seen are measuring more of imbalances rather than trying to monitor that fatigue. And from the athletes that we've spoken to, um, yeah, Fitbit's an option. You could look at the whoop band. But for example, strength athletes, heart rate variability doesn't really show them what they need. And if you target that strength and conditioning in the other, uh, in the other sports, you're really not able to pinpoint where that fatigue is specifically coming from and where you run a risk of injury. So Obi mentioned that uh, some of the people that originally helped come up with this idea were at Clemson University, one of which we're still in really good contact with. He's a sports scientist for uh, the University of Clemson's football team, American football team. And he said the way that he would use where this is headed is, for example, you do a test where you see if the athlete is fatigued, but they do it while they're wearing this device. So you could see exactly which muscle is causing that majorly. What should they avoid when they're training? How should their program actually be steered so that they avoid injury of that muscle and they can still optimize the other parts of the training? So at the moment, what are most athletes Uh, worldwide? What are they doing to prevent injuries? Um, I would imagine they use some sort of technology, maybe different things. You mentioned Fitbits or basic stuff that everyone else has access to. What else do they do? They do a couple of different things depending on which sport you're talking about. So for example, within, um, within football, you can do motion capture analysis. You can, there's um, 
There's a device that monitors what's called external load. So you have external load and internal load. External load is pretty much what you're doing. So acceleration patterns, deceleration patterns, how fast you're running, basically how much your body did during that workout. And then there's internal load, which is how your body is responding to that workout. Most of the devices that do GPS tracking or motion capture tracking, they're measuring external load but not the internal load. And then those that do measure the internal load, it's not really a load monitoring device. It's more, you can tell the imbalances, like I said before. Um, But then in strength training specifically, you can measure bar speed. So how quickly the bar goes up and down or something called RPE. So how it's, it's supposed to be used as how many reps do you have left in the tank? So for example, RPE eight, you could have done two more sets. Um, but that that proves difficult for people to take the subjectivity out of it. Uh, and we actually spoke to the guy who made that RPE scale. He's the one who tested his own urine for a month. And we, we got into a philosophical discussion about what fatigue is and how you actually measure it, what it actually means. So we're interested really in doing some testing with him so that we can see how RPE is tied to what we're measuring. Like having lifted previously and watching a lot of other lifters, pretty much there's, you're guessing. So you do this training block, um, you get hurt. Like I haven't heard of a lifter who has never gotten hurt before. That's actually strong. Like everyone gets hurt, whether it's tendonitis, you snap a bicep, um, your, your ankle blows out, your hip, you have hip problems, you pull your lower back, sciatica, you get injured and that's when you know you're overtraining. And so being able to prevent that, you know, you probably have a good 10, 15, maybe 20 years if you're lucky of lifting in you. If you get injured, um, and usually you get injured in your prime and in the beginning, if you get injured, you know, a lot, let's say that someone lifts for eight to 10 years, they might be injured 20% of that. So not only did you have, did you lose 20% of your lifting time in your lifetime, but now your body completely moves differently. And if you had been training wrong that the whole time leading up to that, it means you have to undo a lot of work, get down into the core. It's almost like taking apart the engine block and replacing something deep inside. And so then you lose maybe five, 10% more time of your lifting career to just fixing a problem. Then you have to start getting stronger again. So really, that's that's how you figure out like right now if you're overtraining or not. You feel like you're just wrecked. It feels like you're you're in, you just got out of a train wreck. Um, same thing happens with endurance. Like Tanya and I, we train. We ran 40 miles for no reason in a race um, because someone asked us, "Hey, you want to run?" And we we're like, "Let's run." It happens with endurance training too. So you know, you get overheated, you get runner's knee, plantar fasci- fasciitis, hip problems you know, neck problems, back problems, that's when you start to, you start falling apart. That's essentially how you track it. And you try, you know, you use paper and pencil, you track everything. That's pretty much what people use in track. You know, you can use an app, but at the end of the day, there's no technology right now that tells this is how hard your muscle is actually working. This is what it's capable of. Let's baseline that and figure out training regimen based on those 
baselines. So it's not really tracking so much as you feel bad when you've trained too much and that's how you know you shouldn't have trained as much. <laughs> okay, this is all fascinating. I think um, I'm definitely not an athlete. So for me, this conversation is like a whole different world. I was just wondering because, you know, obviously it's a huge industry and you have so many people uh, paying so much money. I'm thinking of football in Europe where you have these astronomical salaries of football players. And I'm just curious to know, for example, what what is the investment that is put in them since they're worth so much money to make sure that they don't get injured. When they get injured, there are huge financial consequences for the football clubs, right? So, and that that goes for, for every every sport. So it's just interesting to hear that there's not a huge amount of competition in this field or there's not a whole lot of technology that's being used on them. Um, and that's great for you because it means that the market is relatively open at least um, and it's a, it's a good opportunity to, to go there. So that's very exciting. What are the next steps for Black Top Labs? What stage are you guys at and what does the future look like? Yeah, um, well, right now, like Hobie said, he's testing on himself. Uh, in terms of testing, we want to find some beta testing with these high-level athletes that we have been interviewing. All of them seem very, very interested in doing that. We're in the process of getting some letters of intent so that we can show them to investors, show that we're not making this up because apparently they've been burned before by people saying, yeah, the market wants this, and then turns out they don't. So we're validating that in that respect. Uh, we also are on the brink of a couple different sales uh, within research institutes, within these athletes. Uh, so basically what we're doing in that respect is trying to show traction for investors. Um, we do have a runway up until around April of next year. So, and if we decide to not pay ourselves for longer, we can extend that. Um, but we're looking for investment. So we're about to enter a seed round so that we can try to raise capital in order to um, get ready for the next phases, which would be actually really going hard with sales, penetrating the market and finishing up this prototype. So we should have that six sensor prototype in hand by September and between now and then, we're going to be doing iterative design as much as possible with the patch design, so sending out different samples to athletes of what we have and making sure that if they wear something like this, if the, if the stickiness is enough, if it's going to let them breathe while they exercise, if it's sweat resistant, making sure that that's ready to go once we get these six sensors together. We're also storyboarding out the app design. So we have the algorithm fully developed, but we want to make sure that that user interface is something that will fit into that workflow, uh, that the user experience is good, that they'll stick with using it. So we're storyboarding that out and then we'll be able to transition from first from MATLAB to something they can use on the web and then from something they can use on the web to that app that they would have in hand. So. Technology-wise, validating with the customer as much as possible until we have those that um, that hardware that we need to make the sale. Uh, in terms of customers, just keep doing these customer interviews. And in terms of financials, getting ready to raise that seed round and prepping what investors need to see in order to have the technology and the business do risk. So you have quite a bit of work to do. <laughs> is it just the two of you that will be doing all this work or is anyone helping out? Uh, it's always been the two of us. But we do have really good support system in place. So back in the U.S., even before we left for Europe, we had about 100 different mentors between Hobie and I that we consulted 
going along the way. We're part of an accelerator program in Belgium called Move Up uh, with digital attraction. So there's a lot of good business support there. We have an H2020 grant from the European Commission. Uh, so with that, with that Smarties grant, we have a lot of business counsel, a lot of technical counsel. Uh, actually, have a good developer in Barcelona who's tra- working on a, what's called a dry electrode for us. And now Enam, it's been a really supportive network. After we did the Admo camp, we came into some good contact um, using an attorney from that week and also uh, talking to some other of the mentors so that we can be prepared for what we need to with in terms of marketing, in terms of scaling, and in terms of actual technical validation. That's great. And we're also very happy to continue supporting you in any way that we can. And I saw Christina smiling when you mentioned... Uh dry electrodes because we have another startup in our network that was also on the podcast, Edun Technologies. Uh, they're based in Switzerland and they do, uh, that's exactly what they do, dry electrodes and very cool sensors. And they have this uh, really nice video of a swimmer uh, going, what is he doing, Christina? He's deep diving, I right? He's, he's deep going... diving, yeah. Or is that what it's called when they dive really deep? I don't know. <laughs> I guess if they dive really deep, it's called deep diving. I'm just going to, I'm going to hope so. Anyway, the sensors are doing wonderful things while he's deep diving or whatever it's called, um, measuring his uh, performance and whether he can go any deeper than that or not. So maybe we'll connect you with them. That might be another interesting collaboration. Who knows? Um, But yeah, it's good to know you have a good support system. That's what we're drumming on about here, that it's always important for startups, even if they're small, even if they're just starting to start building a big network and have lots of people helping them out. And maybe you don't need to have a big team. Maybe you just need to have a big network to start off with. Also, congratulations for winning best pitch at AdmiCamp. <laughs> yeah, that was a, it was a pretty impressive uh, thing to win because there were 13 startups and they were all pretty good. So um, congrats. We were very proud to see that. And because we're coming towards the end of our episode, I want to ask if there's anything you would like to ask for in case anyone is listening. Well, and we know that some people are listening, but anything you want to ask for, uh, you're looking for something in particular, yeah, any wishes, thoughts, comments? Yeah, so we'll definitely reach out to Edun in Switzerland and try to get into contact with them. A couple of the mentors mentioned them as well, so our plan was to reach out this week. And yeah, in terms of what else we would need uh, like i said we're about to enter this round of seed funding raising seed fundraising so any context to people who would be interested in hearing more about the technology um, what we found is that it always works better if they they're mentors before they invest so that we can talk to them a lot see what the relationship would be like and then see if the, the vision aligns. So if there's anybody along those lines who would be interested in having a conversation with us, that would be really cool. Um, in addition to that, I guess, Hobie, what would we want for the technical aspect? I guess we're looking for people who have backgrounds in EMG, electrophysiology, to come to our board of advisors to kind of help steer us and ensure that everything that we're doing is up to the gold standard. We're consulting a lot of people right now, but we would like somebody on our board of advisors so that we could have someone we can turn to whenever there is a question. Yeah, I think from the technical side, um, board of advisors with uh, the technical expertise in um, to kind of validate the momentum that we have, um, that would be good. 
But I think from the technical point of side, we just want people that are serious about getting stronger to test our product. Uh, if you work for a research institution, even better. But mainly, we need people to test our product. So anybody out there that's, that wants to get stronger, is tired of getting hurt and overtrained, we might have an answer for you. So that might be all the athletes in the world. <laughs> yeah. Any, any research institutes that uh, specialize in human movement science would be great as well. Great. So let's see. We'll find out uh, if we have any listeners in, in those spaces. Thank you both so much for, <laughs> for being on our podcast today. We hope you get um, people contacting you after this. And we'll keep connecting you with anyone we know that uh, could be good for you. And yeah, we'll definitely keep in touch. Thanks for joining us today. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank Thanks. you for having me. Thanks for listening to Start Up the Science. If you like our show and want to know more about what we do, check out our website at enam.berlin. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time.